Hello, and welcome to another episode of the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Barbara Vanotti, and I'm the Press and Communications Assistant at the European Policy Center. As protests in Israel increase, voicing the citizens' discontent with Netanyahu's extremist agenda, the second part of the podcast will consider the international response to the new government in Israel. EPC analyst Mihai Kihaya is joined by Maya Sion, Aaron David Miller and Azrael Bermont to discuss the US stance towards Netanyahu, the significance and purpose of President Herzog's visit to Brussels and the new government's position towards Russia and the war in Ukraine. How will the new leadership in Israel affect the geopolitical agenda? Please listen to the new government in Israel, domestic and foreign policy implications. Welcome to the second part of our discussion on the new government in Israel and its implications for Israel's domestic and foreign policy. At the end of our first episode, we have been focusing on the approach towards Iran, Iran's nuclear program and Iran's regional behavior. To pick it up from there, I'd like to stay with you, Aaron, and ask you, is the military option again on the table? I think administration still, at least on paper, is reluctant to abandon some diplomatic pathway, whether it's more for more, less for less, or a return to the JCPOA. The real question for the administration is, if the, if Iran came back tomorrow, having controlled the, the demonstration, would the administration be able to enter any diplomatic process that would involve sanctions relief for this Iranian government? given its repression in the streets and its current effort to assist Mr. Putin in killing Ukrainians. I would say that at the moment, if you ask me, deterrence means more than rhetorical deterrence. Deterrence means more than just saying all options are on the table. Deterrence means more than just saying the United States will not permit Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. Deterrence needs to be communicated in a way that is not threatening to the point of pushing parties toward war, but with a clarity that makes it unmistakably manifest to an Iranian regime that if X, Y, and Z occur, then military force may well be the only option on the table. And I think that the political government in Israel would like to bring the United States to the position that there is no political pathway, that the only avenue left open to constrain Iran is political pressure and isolation, economic pressure and isolation, and the preparation of a credible military option. And there's a margin there between a deterrent approach that might actually restrain Iran from crossing certain thresholds and a way that this could be done that would aggravate the situation and push us closer to a military confrontation. That's where I think that exercise may well have been a sort of opening preview of the kind of demonstrable deterrence that the administration wants to highlight. It really depends on how risk-ready Iran wants to be. Just a follow-up question. Why the U.S. is not doing more to limit the new government's actions? And to add to this, how the U.S. can be tough on Israel? It won't come as a surprise to anybody who's watched American policy for a very long time that fighting with Israel is an occupational hazard for any number of administrations. The fights usually take place when, in fact, the United States sees an opportunity to move in a direction that could actually produce something positive. 
or they occur in response to an Israeli provocation. And the three Americans who have fought with Israel over the last 50 years are Nixon and Kissinger, Jimmy Carter, and Bush 41 and James Baker. All of them ended up in tussles with with Israeli governments and their supporters in the United States. Kissinger and Nixon in the wake of three disengagement agreements in the wake of the 1973 war, Jimmy Carter in the wake of Sadat's trip to Jerusalem and the Camp David summit, and Bush 41 and James Baker on the way to Madrid, the Madrid Peace Conference and housing loan gear. American presidents can be tough with Israel, but only under circumstances when, in fact, that toughness could actually result in something that normal humans would consider a success. Joe Biden, who had a ringside seat to what happens when an American president fights with Israel, both on the Palestinian issue and Iran at the same time. Now, on the Iranian issue, the Obama administration, because it was willful and skillful, although the knock on the JCPOA has grown much more intense since the agreement was actually concluded and since Donald Trump withdrew from it in 2018. That was a success, but it resulted in considerable tension with Israel. Joe Biden drew, in my judgment, from watching Obama, the following conclusion. Number one, if you want to fight with the Israelis, pick a fight that you could actually win. And number two, do not fight with Israel and take on both Iran and the Palestinian question at the same time. So you ask me why the Biden administration isn't tougher on Israel? I think the answer is very simple. One, it is Joe Biden's experience as Obama's vice president. Number two, it's Joe Biden's own view of Israel. If you're looking for a presidential model to compare Biden to, it's not Obama. It's Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton And Joe Biden are probably two of the most pro-Israeli presidents. They are politicians. They grew up in a political culture where being good on Israel was essential to success in American politics. And they both had deep emotional commitments. So Joe Biden's first inclination is not to jam an Israeli prime minister, but to basically try to put your arm around him and work with him. I think Biden understands perfectly well what Netanyahu's limitations are. But I also think he's about to declare sometime this spring his intention to seek a second term. And Israel has become a highly partisan issue in our politics. You have a Republican Party that has set itself up as the go-to Israel right or wrong party. And you have a Democratic Party, a progressive wing that wants to hold Israel accountable. And most traditional Democrats who are supportive, but are really unwilling to impose that kind of accountability. In other words, to basically say to the Israelis, if you want to expand settlement activity, there will be a consequence. Nobody in Congress, with the exception of a small number of progressives, is willing to do that. So from Biden's perspective, fighting with Netanyahu on the Palestinian issue, or particularly on Iran now, there's no way this administration is going to come up with an initiative that is going to allow the Iranians to reap the rewards of sanction relief. I think it's just politically impossible. So the administration is drifting. And I mentioned to you before, I do not know how this administration will act if, for example, six months from now, Itamar Ben-Gavir decides he's going to formalize Jewish presence on the harem 
Temple Mount and institutionalized Jewish prayer. I don't know how the administration would react if Bezalel Smotrich, who is now for all practical purposes the governor of the West Bank, undermining the chain of command with an extremist and an ideologue who's committed to basically annexing Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, where most of the Israeli settlers reside and where three to 400,000 Palestinians reside. He is going to affect matters there on a day-to-day basis. I don't know how the administration will respond. I would like to think that they go beyond words and impose consequences. But here we run into the critical issue, which is priorities for this president and his domestic politics. Thank you, Aaron. I would maybe just now go back to you, Ezra, because you mentioned a Russian invasion of Ukraine and the war happening now in Ukraine. I just wanted to, to go back to this and ask you how the position of the new government might change in the relations to Russia and Ukraine. Right now, Israel's foreign minister, official foreign minister, I should say, even though it's Ron Derma, who is in reality the one who holds the reins of power in terms of his foreign minister, but uh, Eli Cohen, who was appointed to the role, he's said that during an opening address at his induction speech that Israel would say less about the issue of Ukraine, which suggests that uh, Israel is not going to speak out against Russia's actions in Ukraine. Unlike previous government under Lapid, where Israel did openly condemn Russia, although, of course, its assistance to Ukraine didn't go beyond humanitarian assistance. As of now, there is no indication that Israel is going to show a willingness to provide stronger support to Ukraine. On the contrary, it seems to be backsliding. Having said that, in light of what has just happened with Germany's decision to send tanks to Ukraine, it's very possible that we could see potential escalation between Russia and the West, and Israel will find itself in a situation where it will be forced, likely to be in a very difficult position if it continues to sit on the fence. And it's possible that the United States will exert tremendous pressure. Is it possible perhaps that Netanyahu will look for some kind of quid pro quo that in, in, in exchange for Israeli readiness to provide some kind of, albeit symbolic, perhaps assistance to Ukraine? Certainly Israel, as of now, for example, is not willing to send missile defense systems to Ukraine. But will Israel be forced to change its position. I do sense that if there is an escalation, that Israel will come under greater pressure. This pressure could eventually tell. But even then, I think we'd be, we'd be looking maybe at some kind of symbolic support. And But for now, Netanyahu will try to stay in good terms with Putin, continue sending humanitarian support to Ukraine. And as I said, this could change in the event of a major escalation between Russia and the West. Maybe I'll turn now to you, Maya. I would like to go back to, to the issue of the President Herzog visit to Brussels. What's the significance of this visit in the current context? I think there are several important points with Herzog's visit in Brussels. I think this is an opportunity for Europeans to actually address their concern and major concern with the democratic backsliding that may take place in Israel. And in in that respect, I think liberal democratic uh, countries, be it governments or parliament members, be it civil society organizations across the European Union, should come together defending other democracies and fighting to preserve democracies. Now, obviously, most of this struggle is domestic one, and we have seen these huge demonstrations in Israel. But for the time being, this is really two camps in Israel struggling one against the other. And within the liberal secular camp, there are internal fights, we don't have a leadership 
the, the political heads of the opposition are not in the position of leadership. There is uh, internal fights between Yair Lapid, uh, between Benny Gantz, between Mirab Michaeli, and we still need to see some coalition that would be formed to actually defend democracy within Israel. So we are in a very vulnerable situation right now. And be it as it may that most of the fight should be internal and by the citizens of Israel, be it Jews and Arabs alike, I think we would like, I would like to see the Europeans and the Americans coming to the aid of the liberal democratic forces in Israel that would also play a role in the Palestinian conflict where uh, Israel and its uh, Supreme Court would try to protect some, at least, of the Palestinians' rights and human rights. So I think most of the significance that I see in Herzog's visit to Brussels is actually the pressure that should be made on Herzog to play a much more dominant role in what has been going on internally in, inside Israel. The other issue referred to Iran. And here, again, as we've mentioned, there were two issues of, of harsh contention between Israel and the EU. Well, the one of them was Iran and the second was the Palestinian. So now I think Israel sees much more eye to eye with the EU and with the United States when it comes to how to handle the Iranian issue. And also Israel is obviously, at least, you know, the former government was very much criticizing the ongoing violation of human rights and very violent treatment of the regime against the demonstrations of, of women's rights and freedom in Iran. So I think Iran is, is one issue on the table. And, and the, the point of Herzog was that actually Iran drones being sent to Russia and now hitting Ukrainian civilians is forging the Israel-EU relations in a, in a stronger direction. There is a, a forging of interests here, and uh, I agree with that. But on the other hand, he mentioned Israel as a democratic country, with uh, as a like-minded country to the EU, and this is almost if the government plans would take place domestically, then that would not be the case. One last point that I, I see in the importance of, of Herzog visiting the European Parliament on the eve of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day is actually a more internal discussion within the European countries about the Holocaust and about the lessons that Europe can draw from the Holocaust. Thank you, Maya. Now, I would like just to pose one question to, to, to each of you, but very quickly in one or two minutes. I would like to, for a second to, to imagine we are one year from now. Where, where could we stand in all these developments? I'm not asking, of course, for a prediction. I'm more asking for a potential future. Unfortunately, this new government could, as I mentioned, cause setback to the Abraham Accords. But I would say that in spite of the Second Intifada, Israel's relations with the Egypt and Jordan remained in spite of the very difficult situation between Israel and the Palestinians and the violence. And during the recent fighting between Israel and Hamas back in 2021, there was no backsliding. Israel's relations with UAE and Bahrain, for example, remained reasonably strong. So I think we'd have to take something quite extreme for the signatories to turn away from the Abraham Accords. But I do believe that we're not going to see a significant advancement of the normalization between Israel and the Arab world. I just think, uh, in spite of Netanyahu's remarks about Saudi Arabia, it's just hard for me to see the Saudis signing on a, on a normalization agreement with Israel with the conditions as they are. One other point I want to make is resilience within Israel, the Israeli society. As we've discussed, there's a lot of friction, a lot of strong divisions in Israeli society now 
because of what is happening. That is very problematic, very worrying, especially if there's upsurge of uh, violence between Israel and the Palestinians, and of course, all possible confrontation between Israel and Hezbollah, Iran. I mean, the worrying divisions that are opening up in Israeli society is something which we need to pay more attention to, because Israel in the past, during periods of violence, at least you could say that there was some kind of feeling of consensus. And I think that is ruptured. And if the Netanyahu government continues with its efforts to undermine the judiciary, for example, and also close down Israel's media, things like this could, could severely undermine the Israeli resilience. As long as the, this right-wing extreme populist government by, led by Netanyahu, who is, as we've said, the, the soft part of the government, the more democratic one, stays, I think that there is an actual danger of a third intifada. There is another danger of renewed conflict like Shomer Chomot was between the Israeli Arabs and Jews within Israel. So those are two very significant dangers, security dangers that I see. Any deterioration when it comes to the creeping annexation or even informal or formal annexation would obviously jeopardize the Abraham Accords normalization with Morocco and the enhance the better relations that the last government of Lapid and Bennett tried to improve the relations with Jordan and with Egypt. So this is a major dangers for Israel. I think the EU EU's attention and the U.S. attention is to some extent diverted because of the Russian-Ukraine war, and therefore I'm not sure to what extent they will be able to put pressure on, on Israel and on Netanyahu. I think to give maybe two, three positive notes. So there is a chance for Israel to, if we succeed to stop the backsliding of democracy, that Israel may serve as a model for liberal democratic countries to not go in the direction like Hungary did and Poland did. This is a hope for the future. Another one was actually to point the EU's constructive role in stopping annexation of 2020. The Netanyahu and then Benny Gantz government, in the coalition agreements, Netanyahu uh, claimed the right to think and maybe to announce some sort of annexation of the West Bank. That did not mean to an annex 60% of the Palestinian future state, but maybe just parts of that. The plan was stopped and averted not only because of the Abraham Accords, but also because of EU pressure put on Israel. Obviously, there was also US pressure. To some extent, Trump was then the president, but he was not satisfied with annexation, with unilateral annexation. So the European can play a role in stopping some sort of annexation by Israel, and I think they should play this role. If not, Israel will find itself in an extremely difficult situation if it's no longer liberal, no longer democratic, and it is annexing Palestinian territories, some of them or all of Area C, we will find ourselves in a huge, I think, campaign where the BDS would be much stronger. And Borrell's saying just a few weeks ago that he doesn't think that Israel should be referred to as apartheid state would no longer be relevant. I would only say that the longer this government continues, the greater the chances that a thousand fires are going to be lit and Mr. Netanyahu is not going to be able to control them all. I think the best we can hope for, and I don't know whether it's a year or two years, is a effort on the part of the prime minister, and here his legal travails obviously figure centrally, to drop the fundamentalists and reach out to the center right in order to create a government. I mean, maybe it happens without Benjamin Netanyahu. Maybe the trial proceeds apace. There's no effort to cancel or nullify 
or delay it or defer it. But I think the best you can hope for, and, and this is where I think reality is going to hit all of us, the best you can hope for from the Israelis is a course corrective, the return to a center or center-right government, let's call it the old Likud, where democracy is respected, where pluralism and anti-corruption prevail. But that still leaves Israel and the Palestinians with huge gaps between them and huge gaps between Israel, Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel. Huge gaps there as well. I'm afraid on this issue will not hold. The longer this government goes on, the more two ministers, Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bezalel Smotrich, with access to budgets and political influence, light their thousand fires the greater the danger there is of an explosion. What that explosion would bring, how it could make the situation better, I, I can't imagine. Thank you all for joining us for this discussion. I think we covered uh, a lot of ground on the priorities of the new government in Israel, potential developments in relations with the United States, with the European Union. Also, we covered Iran and domestic implications as well. But of course, local, regional, international dynamics are in constant change, and I'm sure we'll have to revert uh, to these issues soon. Our analysis of the impact of the new Israeli government continues beyond this podcast. EPC analyst Marta Musnik and Carmel Arbit, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, have recently published a commentary on the role and potential of the domestic protests in Israel, which is available on the EPC website. We will continue exploring this topic in the days and weeks to come, but until then, over and out.